Some companies still know how business casual is done. It's strictly business. It is a Friday. It is November. Wow. November 1st, a Friday, a casual Friday. It is a casual Friday, Daniel. And... I am just really looking forward to embracing this cold weather head on. I'm a fan. I'm a fan of bundling up of layers of blankies. Um, you know, I'm not I'm not opposed to having to brace the cold a little bit more. Yeah? Yeah. I mean, really. You rocking I, the turtleneck today? I, I mean, am. It, you really look like you're 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 feeling it. I like, mean, this look, is good. Just because we live in Texas doesn't mean everyone who lives in Texas likes heat. It's true. All yeah, right. Yeah. Stop assuming, people. I don't like the heat. It's too. It's too hot out here. It, it, it's not that I like the heat. It's that I've. I, I think I've learned to manage it a little bit better than I've learned to manage the cold. Sure. I suppose. So similar to how like every time it it like snows or ices here, like we all freak out, or like everybody freaks sure. out on some level, right? Yeah. Like, and there's car crashes, and oh my gosh, yeah. the road is a little icy. We have no idea yeah. what to do. Yeah. Of course. All of that. All of that and more. So, anyways, I, I guess I've just kind of figured out, I don't know, that, that I can deal with the heat a little bit better, but I'm cool with the cold. I like getting cozy. Yeah, I, uh, I also just uh, prefer the aesthetic look of the cold. That is true. I very much, I, I very much agree on that. I like point. long sleeves. I like turtlenecks and quarter zips and yeah. flannels and uh, jackets. And yeah, I like being able to wear more than one article of clothing to like mm-hmm. accessorize when all you can wear is a t-shirt and some shorts because it's too, too, uh, hot and humid and sticky and muggy outside. It's true. Uh, you know, there's only so much you can do for fashion. And you know, uh, unless you work in a very business casual office, you can't really wear the shorts to uh, the office. No. So, uh, you know, if you walk in from somewhere into work, you're always rocking the sweat. Yeah. Big time sweat. Big time sweat. Big time sweat. All right, folks. Hello. You're listening to Business Casual. If you didn't already realize and you're like, who are these people talking to me through my computer? Yeah. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. I'm your other host, Tyler Kern. We have a big show coming up today, Daniel. Yeah. A lot of, L- lot of very of timely content, very interesting content. Uh, everything from Twitter to Salesforce to Miller Coors to fast food meat we have a little we have a little game coming up where daniel's gonna guess what grade different fast food restaurants were given based on how much uh the amount of antibiotics in their meat how about that oh are you excited about this? i am but i'm also afraid this might sour my uh my view on some of these restaurants i think it's worth pointing out that that's not necessarily like the worst thing, I suppose, like yeah, like opinions about how much is good are are mixed, right? And definitely, so it's not it's not necessarily a black and white thing. But all of that is to come on the show, Daniel. You and I are both on Twitter. We both browse the the Twitter quite a oh, bit. Oh, I'm I'm on Twitter all the time. I love my Twitter. Now the news came down uh, that starting November 22nd, according to tweets made by the company's CEO, Twitter will no longer have political ads globally like they're banning all political ads 
all the way across the globe. And this was a, a long tweet thread by CEO Jack Dorsey that kind of uh, brought this news down. Now, this comes on the heels of last week, Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook struggling to explain Facebook's policy regarding fake ads and that sort of thing in front of Congress. And uh, did you watch any of that at all, or have you seen any of the clips? Yeah, I definitely watched some of the highlights. They were making the rounds on Twitter and on YouTube and... Oof, they're a doozy. They are a doozy, and I want to play a clip here because it illustrates, I think, the sticky situation that social media companies are in when it comes to when it comes to these fake ads and when it comes to what's true and what's not on these yeah. platforms. And so I'm going to play this uh, this excerpt of Mark Zuckerberg talking to Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. Now, your like anybody's feelings on her aside, I think she has some very good questions and raises some relevant issues for all politicians, not just uh, not just one side or the other. So listen with an open mind, depending on however you feel about her, <laughs> because I, I think this is a really interesting exchange. Do you see a potential problem here with a complete lack of fact-checking on political advertisements? Well, Congresswoman, I think lying is bad, and I think if you were to run an ad that had a lie, that would be bad. That's different from it being... Uh, from it, from for in our position, the right thing to do to prevent uh, your constituents or people in an election from seeing that you had lied. Um, so we can. So you won't take down lies, or you will take down lies. I think it's just a pretty simple yes or no. Congresswoman, uh, in I'm not talking about spin. I'm talking about actual. In, yes, in most cases, in a democracy, okay. I believe that people should be able to see for themselves. What politicians that they may or may not vote for? So are you won't take judge them their down. Character for themselves. So you won't take. You may flag that it's wrong, but you won't take it down. Uh, Congresswoman, it's. Uh, it, it depends on the context that it shows up. Organic post. Ads. So she interrupts again, and this kind of just keeps going on, where she tries to nail him down on whether or not. Okay, she she kind of threw out an example. Could I run ads? against Republican or in Republican primaries right. saying that certain Republicans voted for the Green New Deal when right. they very clearly did not. Right. And she kept using this example and he kept trying to dodge and dip and dive, duck, dip, dodge, <laughs> dip and dive. The five D's. Yes, uh, of dodgeball. But so he kept trying to dodge the question. But what it really illustrates is that in as long as you are willing to take money from political campaigns, from political ads, you're going to have a philosophical question of how exactly you handle misinformation and just outright lies. And I thought that was a really good example of that. So Twitter, by kind of nipping this in the bud, is this a smart idea or is this a cop-out from a difficult question and kind of removing yourself from a political process when, as a social media platform, you are part of the conversation, whether you like, like it or not? Mm. Yeah, I... Uh... I see many sides of the issue here, and a lot of them resonate with me uh, because it really is not black and white. Uh, you know, I think to a degree, the idea of uh, having stronger fact checking for political ads as a social media platform should be, you know, intrinsic to what you do. Um, you know, you, there shouldn't be. The ability to pay uh, a platform for airtime, runtime of a, an advertisement that is a straight up lie, factually incorrect. Right. Television is able to do this. You know, you're not allowed to run ads that literally lie to consumers. Uh, so you would hope that a social media platform would do the same. However, I do also see the argument that do we really want to entrust kind of a blind faith in basically tech 
oligarchs in Silicon Valley to police and monitor mm-hmm. the content that flows through our platforms. Right. And without very detailed information on this is exactly how we would monitor, this is who we would bring on to fact check and how many layers of uh, of oversight this would be in. Like, sure. I, I don't think the consumer and I don't think the politically savvy uh you know, either politically involved people or just voters would really enjoy, I think, having Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, which is also Facebook, just, you know, deciding what is and what isn't appropriate. Mm-hmm. Um, because, I mean, not to get touchy, uh, but, you know, often there are large issues uh, that come down the pipeline that there is dissenting opinion on, but that dissenting opinion is not the opinion of the gov or not the opinion of, you know, you you kind of go against the grain. And sometimes we find out a decade later, oh, okay, yeah, these people were right and what we were hearing and what was supposedly, you know, you got to accept this as important information, intelligence that is 100% accurate was not 100% accurate. It was actually mostly false. Now, in that situation... Would dissenters putting out information be banned and we say, ah, this is false. You know, no, we have direct intelligence from the government that says this isn't um, this isn't false. You're lying. We're going to ban this now. So it, it, it could have a backwards effect, I think. And I also think that uh, banning political advertisement completely and to Jack's point, he would also ban issues advertisement so not just related to campaigns but also national policy issues or any sort of ad pushing for legislation so that includes things like abortion tax reform um uh, health care uh anything in between that is no longer allowed so a how do you define what is a national issue that is worthy of being banned uh and b what kind of a negative impact might this have on important issues that need a boost through funding, you know, that need to be pushed into the public eye beyond just writing a hot tweet mm-hmm. that plays to the algorithm well? I, I, I don't know. It, it's very layered, and I see both sides of the issue. Um, I, I just don't know if banning all political advertisement and issue advertisement is going to do anything beyond just uh, kind of enabling inflammatory and hot take tweets to just be more and more important for you to get your issues across as a politician now mm-hmm. on these platforms. You got to find a way to play the algorithm and play your audience right to get those retweets and get those likes instead of maybe pushing for, hey, chip in five bucks to my campaign, right? Yeah. Or, you know, pushing for, hey, here's information on this issue. We're going to pay for Twitter to advertise on it. So I think it could backfire and punish people that aren't utilizing political advertisements in a negative way. Um, And uh, I, I, I don't know. It's tough. It's a very tough and layered issue that I see both sides of. 
Jack had a series of uh, of tweets. There were there are a lot of them, and it was hard to kind of scroll through and find certain ones. But there were three that stood out to me kind of in a row, and so I'll read those. It says, yeah. Internet political ads present entirely new challenges to civic discourse. Machine learning-based optimization of messaging and micro-targeting, unchecked misleading information, and deep fakes, all at increasing velocity, sophistication, and overwhelming scale. These challenges will affect all internet communication, not just political ads. Best to focus our efforts on the root problems without the additional burden and complexity complexity of taking money brings. Trying to fix both means fixing neither well and harms our credibility. For instance, it's not credible for us to say we're working hard to stop people from gaming our system to spread misleading info, but if someone pays us to target and force people to see their political ad, well, they can say whatever they want. And that's an interesting way of putting it, and that to me was the most compelling argument, right? Like, they can do all of these different things to try to combat misleading information and that sort of thing. But if you pay Twitter enough money, then, okay, yeah, we'll let you target whoever you want with a misleading advertisement or untrue information. And uh, that kind of illustrates, I suppose, the pickle that social media outlets are in um, with this whole thing. And so you're right. I I can see both sides of the issue. But for me, I'm not terribly disappointed that there won't be political ads on on Twitter this year. Yeah. I mean, it's... uh... Like I said, it's one way to approach this issue, mm-hmm. uh, clearly the opposite of how Facebook is wanting to approach it. And I I applaud Jack for making such a bold decision. Uh, and I, I do agree that it was uh, – it definitely is needed. We definitely need to kind of reform how we approach paying for political discourse on these platforms. I just personally uh, think it could backfire in a few ways and am interested to see how this plays out because I don't think this is the end of the conversation. Eventually, we're going to need to address, you know, we can't just block political advertisement forever. Sure. I think this is more of a band-aid to a larger conversation. Definitely. I think that's probably correct, and we'll have to see what comes out of it. There's another story I wanted to bring up because it actually has me more fired up than I thought I would be. (laughs) Let's hear it. And this is Miller Coors is slashing up to 500 salary positions and changing its name as Millennials Ditch Beer. That's hmm. the that's the headline here from Business Insider. Molson Coors announced a massive restructure on Wednesday, which will kill the Miller Coors brand and combine the company's U.S. business with its Latin American and Canadian businesses. And as a result, the company is expected to cut 400 to 500 salary positions. In 2018, sales of Coors Light declined by 3.9% and Miller Light dropped by 1.3% as, once again, millennials ditched beer. And um, so there have been studies saying that millennials are responding to studies saying, hey, we're drinking less and all of this kind of thing. Uh, There's a study from uh, Bank of America, uh, Merrill Lynch, uh, that said 31% of millennial respondents said they were drinking less alcohol than before, up up from 21% in 2018. Among millennials who were drinking less, 27% said they were drinking less beer, more than the 26% who said they were cutting down on spirits, and 12% who said they were drinking less wine. Huh. Now, first of all, I'm not like I, I don't want to like attack the credibility of a study and that kind of thing because I, I I don't know the, all the efforts that they went into for this, but like I'm not going to go and willingly say. I wonder about the truthfulness of everybody that responded to this study. First of all, but the <laughs> other thing is, yeah, people might not want to admit they're chugging. Three beers a day. Exactly. Or more. Maybe, yeah. Something <laughs> like that. But the other thing is that I totally have a, a big problem with it being like, millennials are just drinking less beer. Let's throw up our hands and like give up on the thing. Meanwhile, Miller Coors has been running the same series of advertisements for the last, I don't know, how long have I been alive? 30 yeah. years? The silver bullet stupid train ads and things like that <laughs> that they've been rolling out. 
And all at the same time, blaming millennials for drinking less beer, maybe we are, but part of that has to be the fact that nothing about these big, big, huge beer brands have managed to evolve or change over the years. Mm. And so they have these big titanic operations that have failed to see that drinking habits amongst younger people have changed. Sure, you can blame millennials for drinking less beer if you want, but did you ever actually try to understand the marketplace or adjust anything about your branding, who you are as a company, and what you're doing to try to recognize and adopt changing trends? No, you're still running the same thing. You're still marketing to the same people. Meanwhile, 25-year-olds aren't the same 25-year-olds that are 50 years old now. Right. It's all changed. And so understand that before coming and saying, millennials just don't drink beer. I drank beer last night. You know what I didn't drink? Miller Coors. (laughs) So I mean, no, it's so true. I mean, there are some beers that the branding for them really haven't haven't embraced anything beyond being like a dad beer. Yeah. You know, like Miller Coors really screams, yeah, this is a dad beer. Tastes as cool as the Rockies. Right. Okay. Yeah, right. And so I I, I really don't think beer is out of style. If anything, craft beer is way more in style and people love the, the, the creativity, the flexibility of, of crafting your own beer. Um, and of having like a nuanced take on, oh yeah, I like beers with this flavoring and this flavoring. I mean, I know craft beer as an industry is only continuing to grow. So Miller Coors is really not embracing any sort of craft beer Mm -hmm. reality. Um, it's basically the same beer they've had for years and they're kind of just banking on being everyone's favorite light beer. The problem is you also got Bud Light. You've also got, uh, you know, even like your Stella's and and sure. your your Pabst Blue Ribbons, your Natty Lights. Cervezas have managed to grow in popularity over the last few years, increasing their market share. Mm-hmm. Craft beer uh, is up to 13% of the U.S. beer market now, up uh, 4% from 2017 to 2018. Boom, there so you go. So all of these different things are combining, and I mean... You could take that study and extrapolate it out and maybe try to make a larger point that millennials have stopped drinking beer. But to me, I think that misses the larger point that these gigantic beer brands that became Titanics have been able, have been unable to turn away from the iceberg that they've been going towards for the last 15 years because they are so gigantic and their operations are so rooted in mass production and in mass sales and that right. sort of thing. So, Well, you know, last point here is... Clearly, they are realizing that they had a branding issue, but their solution seems to be way more transformative than I think is necessary. Ditching the entire Miller Coors brand and completely rebranding themselves as a beer. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, I mean, it, it sounds like, are they going to be changing their name? And like, yeah. The pre- yeah. So, I mean, they're going all in. Miller Coors is now basically going to be a dead brand. Is that necessary to re-reach consumers? And I, I mean, honestly, I don't necessarily think so. I mean, it's not like you have to completely, like, trick the end consumer into thinking, okay, now this beer is totally different and it, it speaks to me, the young, hip millennial or Zoomer. Um, but it, I, I don't know. It's it's a it's a strange decision and a very, like, restructuring decision on Miller Coors' part um, that might just end up being, like one of the final straws like it might actually end up really negatively impacting the company if they don't really stick the landing here yeah 
Absolutely. It's a, it's a fundamental misunderstanding of the marketplace, changing marketing trends, that sort of thing. You're still trying to tell me your product has flavor when everybody knows it doesn't have flavor. Right. Lean into the fact that it just is what it is, that right. it is the dad beer. Anyways, when we get back, <laughs> we're going to play a little game. I have a list of companies that have been given a grade based on the amount of antibiotics in their meat. These are all kind of fast food or kind of chain restaurants and places around the country. I'm going to give Daniel a restaurant. He's going to tell me what their grade was. So oh that boy. is coming up when we get back. Don't go anywhere. Business Casual will be right back here in 30 seconds. Let's do it. Have you ever thought to yourself, podcasts are pretty cool. I should use one to market my company. Good news. You're not alone. But where do you start? MarketSkills Thought Leadership Club makes it easy to dive into the world of B2B podcasting. With in-house podcast production, audio hosting, and more, MarketSkill can be your podcast partner that sets you up as a thought leader in your industry, creating the content that powers B2B. For more information, head to marketscale.com and find out what thousands of companies already know to be true, that podcasting is the future of thought leadership in B2B marketing. All right, quiz me, man. All right. So, little background. Every year, Chain Reaction Antibiotics uh, releases a scorecard, which grades restaurants based on their antibiotic food policies. The report surveyed up to 25 U.S. burger chain restaurants in America and the top 25 overall fast food and fast casual chains about their meat and poultry supply chain, their antibiotic use policies for beef sourcing, and transparency around their beef supply chains with customers. So... We have uh, we have these here companies. I have this here handy chart. That's going to tell me all that we need to know. And uh, I'm going to give you four different companies. You tell me what their grade was, A through F, all right? All right. Here we go. Let's start off with uh, maybe the biggest, McDonald's. And so this is just for their beef? This is just for their beef, but this is for uh, antibiotic use in their beef supplies. And F is... M- a ton of antibiotics. A is like zero antibiotics. F is what some would call an F ton of antibiotics. An F ton. I'm gonna go with a D grade on McDonald's. You are very close. McDonald's uh, round out with a C grade. A in C. This. Okay. C. After being rated an F a few years ago, they actually made a big push to try to kind of raise their rating and kind of get out of the, mm. the basement uh, dwelling group. <laughs> There with the other restaurants. Okay, so McDonald's with a C. With a C, you know, okay. Solid passing grade there. Yeah. Uh, Starbucks. Man, you know, I don't think Starbucks puts a lot of weight in the quality of their beef as like what brings people to their store. So sure. I would imagine maybe they don't care so much about having the super high quality beef. I would, I'm going to lean D again. I'm going to go D. I'm going to say maybe in a strange turn of events, they have worse beef than McDonald's. They were given an F grade, an F, Starbucks with an F. Now, I'm struggling to think of like how much beef Starbucks actually has, like what they have on their menu that actually has beef, but whatever it is, got an F. So F for Starbucks. Wow. Chipotle. I'm going to go A. Chipotle was given an A. Let's go. You are correct. Let's go. You are correct. Chipotle with the highest marks of any uh, any restaurant here on this list. I mean, dude, uh, their, their meat's high quality. You yeah. can taste it. You can really see it. And I, I think they also advertise that they go no antibiotics or like or something. Is that a big selling point? For maybe, them? maybe. I maybe I'm just conflating like two different advertisements. But I I know when I go to Chipotle, their whole thing is clearly fresh ingredients. So you would hope that they would rank highly on here. Have or... you gotten the their carne, carne asada yet? I have not, no. I haven't either. 
Maybe, I should change that. Maybe we should hit that up. Also, this weekend, the Popeye's chicken sandwich comes back. <gasps> I need to go get it. I haven't gotten it yet. It's, Anyways. It's tasty. It, is it? I mean, we it's probably about this. full of antibiotics, but it's tasty. Mm, I'm, <laughs> I'm willing to take my chances. Yes. Okay. Last one on this uh, this list. We can go over some others if you want, but last one on the list for the game, Olive Garden. Olive Garden. I'm going to go B. Olive Garden got an F. Ooh. In fact, if you look at the chart, more places got Fs than anything else. So here on this chart, Chipotle got an A, Panera Bread got A minus, McDonald's and Subway C, Wendy's D plus, Taco Bell D. But here are the companies that were given an F grade: Starbucks, Burger King, Domino's, Pizza Hut, Sonic, Applebee's, Olive oh. Garden, Buffalo Wild Wings, <gasps> Little Caesars, Arby's, Dairy Queen, Jack in the Box, Chili's, IHOP, <sighs> and Panda Express. No, not Panda. <laughs> oh wow, that is really disheartening. Yeah. And, you know, I think it really speaks to the kind of state we're in with food production. Um, You know, I've been working on a narrative podcast Mm -hmm. on um, local farming and ethical farming and what it means to be locally sourced. Uh, It's been taking a very long time to put together, so hopefully it comes out sooner than later. But what I've learned is that if you want scale in food production, it's almost impossible to not embrace some of the shortcuts, which include pumping your animals full of antibiotics, mm-hmm. you know, obviously like difficult to you know, completely terrible living conditions for these animals as they're raised and then butchered. I mean, stuff that like we obviously avoid that we don't want to see because we want to just, you know, it, be blind to it. Ignorance is right. bliss when we're eating our burgers. Right. And uh, the fact that Panera and Chipotle were the only two fast food restaurants that... Well, on, on this particular on, chart. Excuse me. Yeah, yes. Yeah. On this particular rundown of, I guess, most critical and like crucial fast food chains in the yeah. nation. I, that yeah. was a pretty comprehensive list. The fact that they were the only ones on that chart that got A grades of any kind... I think really speaks to, you know, if you want to embrace quality food, you have to go out of your way to do it. And it's probably not the most financially mm-hmm. uh, easy decision to make. I mean, it's probably uh, it's probably more costly to embrace something like less or no antibiotics in your food yeah. uh, than it is to just go all in, you know, pump them full of the antibiotics. So... Yeah, it's kind of depressing, but... I feel like a chart like this also illustrates why more people are interested in that locally sourced movement because then you have an idea of... You at least know where something's coming from as opposed to... Uh, you know, going to McDonald's and not knowing where some of these come from. Now, McDonald's had a better grade than uh, lots of other places. Which really surprised me. But, you know, hey... I'm a big fan of a of a Big Mac, man. Exactly. I'll, I'll go all in. Shake Shack and BurgerFi were voted best burger joints for the second year in a row on the Chain Reaction scorecard mm. for having responsibly raised beef cooked at their restaurant. So Shake Shack and BurgerFi. BurgerFi is really good. There's one right off Mockingbird. I have not been yet, but I've driven past it a number of times. I should change that. It's tasty, man. All right. Our last story today before we say goodbye for the week. This is uh, about the Salesforce building in San Francisco, Daniel. It was supposed to be the safest building in the world, but... Then something happened. Yeah, so there was a great expose in Popular Mechanics uh, on Mark Benioff's $2.2 billion Salesforce Salesforce Transit Center. 
That's a mouthful. It sure Salesforce is. Transit Center in Los Angeles. So oh, the sorry, whole... I said San Francisco earlier. Really. I meant Los Angeles. No, you're good. Yeah, yeah. So the whole vision was to be like the Times Square of the West Coast. Mm-hmm. And they definitely achieved that in aesthetics, at least. Um, but in case you missed the news, uh, the Transit Center like you said, called one of the safest buildings in the world, shut down after finding critical structural failures in the supporting steel beams of the building. So why was it hailed as uh, so safe? For some context, the project went through layers and layers of inspection, uh, including a comprehensive review of the structural integrity of the building for its seismic design. Being Mm -hmm. in one of the most earthquake-prone areas of the world, you can't build something this layered where you've got, you know, uh, uh, trains and cars flowing over uh, pedestrians below you and above you. I mean, imagine a a giant earthquake where suddenly you have metro cars crashing through the glass. And, I mean, you're talking like 2012 John Cusack level annihilation here. Oh, yeah. So... They went through a ton of inspection, and specifically for seismic design, they were rated as one of the safest buildings in the world. Fred Clark, the project's lead architect, he declared that the STC was probably one of the safest buildings in the world because of these multi-layered inspections. But something went critically wrong, and that was that the steel breed... Eh, the steel beams, excuse me, had critical brittle fractures due to A, weakness in the metal, B, damage during the fabrication of the metal, and C, stress of load during use. And it was basically regarded as a perfect storm of issues. Wow. And stuff that, you know, it's not really Mark Benioff's fault. It's not like they were negligent because they really did go through a ton of uh, layers of inspection to make sure that this was prepared to handle the kind of traffic that it was going to handle. But clearly it wasn't enough, and clearly, uh, you know, you can only do so much. Uh, what I think this really speaks to is investing in something so massive like this can create such a PR and marketing risk. Mm-hmm. I mean, basically, uh, Mark Benioff decided, you know, yes, Salesforce is a national brand. It is an entity that is driving business across the United States, if not right. worldwide. right. You know what? We are going to make that a staple now of the United States. We want to be, mm-hmm. you know, synonymous with some of the other great business uh, icons of the modern world. Everything from a Trump Tower to Microsoft's campus in Seattle. Okay. Um, I I think that's kind of the vibe here. I mean, it's like kind of a testament to the great work that he's done. Right. But when you invest in something like this, especially in a a pretty you know climate unstable region like California right now, yeah. uh, like LA, you really are gambling on there being no issues. Because imagine they hadn't caught this, and imagine something actually had happened. What kind of a PR nightmare would that have been for Salesforce, and how mm-hmm. would that have damaged their worldwide brand? They still are having to um, you know kind of replace trust in the. Uh, the Los Angeles community to have people, you know, walk through their physical infrastructure now. Right. Hey, you know, this isn't going to collapse. We made sure everything's okay. Uh, come back, come back, embrace this. Now imagine if that had been even worse. It, it could have been a huge issue for Salesforce and really could have put them in the hole financially and uh, from a public perception perspective. So it, it's unfortunate. Uh, it seems like they're 
you know, they, they made it to the other side successfully mm-hmm. and the building is now um, safe once again. But still, I mean, I, I don't know if it's a wise investment to go all in on physical infrastructure when you've got an entire brand at stake. I think you're absolutely right about that. I think that there's a massive risk in attaching your name to a building like that. Um, well, yeah, because it's embedded into the transit of the city. Yeah. I mean, you're not building like a high rise. Yeah. You're building something that is now a functional piece of life in Los Angeles. And if that explodes or crashes or burns to the ground or the beams fracture and a bunch of people die, uh, you know, sorry, but now you are responsible for that and the Salesforce brand is responsible for that. So That's, that's insane. Yeah, it's tough, but clearly that didn't happen. So I'm glad nothing happened. No one got hurt. Everything's fine. But it does point to, you know, if you're a big name and you want to invest in something like this, make a statement in a city or municipality, are you ready to assume the potential risks that come with that? You just got to ask yourself that question. Got to ask yourself that question. And we'll have all weekend to ponder it, Daniel. (laughs) I'm going to be pondering it. I'm going to be pondering it very ponderously. (laughs) The Litwin Center will not be opening for a long time. (laughs) Current tower. uh, Current tower. Still a long ways off. Yes. All right, coming up next, we have another episode of I Don't Care with Kevin Stevenson. We're going to dive into the world of healthcare. Today, we're going to explore wasteful spending, which is a a big, big problem in the healthcare industry. Kevin's going to offer some of his solutions and uh, talk a little bit more about that. So that is coming up next. But for Daniel Litwin, I've been Tyler Kern. We're signing off for another week from Business Casual. Boom. Adios, y'all. Have a good weekend.